Today is Commitment Sunday, and so we have been on this journey together to the avenue, this journey on this, uh, this building next door to us here to be able to purchase it as a way to point people to Jesus. And so, uh, so far, the response we've had from our leaders and from others is so encouraging. Uh, we're making really good progress, but we're not there yet. And so if you forgot your commitment card, there's some on the back table in the back and you can fill one out today uh, and leave it. And even as uh, Kevin was saying, if uh, you're like, hey, I have nothing to give, uh, we would still love to hear from you to know that you're praying for us. And so th- those commitment cards, if you call this your home, we would love for you to fill one out and turn that in. And you can just leave it on the, the table in the back today if you didn't already turn yours in. Next week, we will, Lord willing, be uh, celebrating a huge celebration. And two things that we hope to be celebrating. One, we'll announce the totals for our financial commitment to this avenue. And, and by May 11th, we had a goal of raising $80,000. And then again, by September 1st, we had a next goal of raising another $85,000. And, uh, and our finance team tells us, tells me that they're really encouraged thus far by the progress we're making, but we're not there yet. So we love your, uh, to celebrate in that, the, really the celebration next week uh, of accomplishing this goal, but also accomplishing the goal of everybody participating somehow. And so we look forward to seeing that happen together. Okay, Genesis chapter 24. We're in our 10th message in this Abraham series. And as I was preparing for this message, it occurred to me this week that uh, I enjoy movies and TV shows, and, but one of the things I realized that I enjoy about certain TV shows and movies and certain entertainment is that it's sort of an escape from ordinary life. Generally speaking, they don't make movies about ordinary life. That's because no one wants to watch a movie about ordinary life. Most of us live ordinary lives, and it'd be boring to see a movie about an ordinary life. The exception to that would be the, the Hallmark Channel. Pretty much, that's everything they air on the Hallmark Channel. Um, but anyway, nonetheless, I, I said generally speaking, it seems that most stories we watch or are, are, are read are about in extraordinary events. And in the same way, sometimes we read the Bible, and it seems that the Bible only talks about God's hand moving in extraordinary ways. So many times we get wrapped up and and the stories, then the accounts of what happened in the Bible are so captivating because they're about extraordinary events, about how God's hand was working in history. For example, the Red Sea, we read this account of Moses bringing the people in the Exodus out of Egypt, being trapped by the Red Sea, and then God, in this extraordinary way, showing up and splitting the Red Sea, and, and millions of people walk across on dry land. It's extraordinary. Or we see fire from heaven in the account of Elijah, who offers up a contest with the false gods. And Elijah builds this altar to God, and he prays, and he drenches it in water and he prays and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the altar and everyone screams out, the Lord, he is God. It's extraordinary. Or the three guys, the three friends that 
uh, defied their king and refused to bow before a false king and they're thrown into the fiery furnace and God himself shows up. Or Daniel in the lion's den who was committed to pray to his God and is, is thrown into the lion's den and God closes the mouths of the lions. Or Jesus healing lepers and paralyzed and the blinds. He heals these people in an extraordinary way. And then of course, one of the uh, highlights in, in, in the Gospels is Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And we have here, in these accounts, extraordinary ways in, God, in which God works. And all of these accounts are extraordinary because God is accomplishing his good purposes in the world. And when it's an extraordinary account, it's easy to see how God's hand is moving. But to be honest, sometimes it's hard for me to relate. And I wonder if it's sometimes hard for you to relate. Because our lives usually are just ordinary. They don't seem extraordinary. I've never shut the mouth of anything except for my three-year-old hungry boy. And I only did that by shoving a donut in it, right? So, like, you know, I've never shut lion's mouths. I've never done any of this. God works in ways, though, that are more than just extraordinary. Today, I need you to know that God works in ways in our lives that sometimes we see are completely ordinary. His hand of providence, his sovereign hand, is still working today in the events of your life and of mine. And while it's true, sometimes he works in extraordinary ways today. Most of the time, God is working in ordinary ways. God's hand, his sovereign hand, is moving in the ordinary events of your life and my life. And I want to show you this from Genesis chapter 24. Now, we've been in this series on Abraham for a while, and, and every time we're in this series, I remind you of this slide right here. God made four promises to Abraham. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham for no reason, nothing that Abraham did on his own. God came to him for God's own purpose and will, and he came to him and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And God blesses the socks off Abraham. He comes to him and says, I'm going to, first of all, make you a great nation. And of course, Abraham needs a son. He has no heir. How is he going to become a great nation if he has no descendants? And so much of the story of Abraham is spent on this first promise, seeing an heir be born to him. The second promise that God made to Abraham was he'd give Abraham a great name. And the third promise then is that Abraham would be a great blessing, not just to his own descendants, but he promises Abraham, Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the people of the entire world. And you and I sitting here today are recipients of that promise to Abraham. Because Abraham's descendants through Jesus have blessed us. Abraham was a great blessing. And then the fourth thing that God promises to Abraham is a great land. God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And he marks out the territory there in uh, what we see eventually is the nation of Israel there in the Middle East. And God marks out that territory and he promises it to him. And all this happens back in Genesis chapter 12. Where we've been at then for the last few months here is we've seen a lot happen to Abraham. Over the course of, uh, of the next 25 years or so, a lot happens. Abraham has a son with his servant, Hagar, the son is Ishmael, and of course we know Ishmael is not the promised son. 
And at a hundred years of age, as we saw a couple weeks ago, Abraham has a son named Isaac with Sarah. Abraham's a hundred years old, Sarah's 90. They have a kid, they have a boy. Isaac, the blessed promised son, the son who the whole first part of this promise, the great nation, would happen through Isaac. And God promised him. And then God's promise was tested. Last week we saw this, how Abraham is tested and he offers up his only son Isaac on the altar. And we saw last week that God is enough to meet all of our deepest needs and longings. And God provided, of course, this uh, substitute in Jesus. And just as we saw, a ram was substituted for Isaac, so Jesus is substituted for us. So now we come to Genesis chapter 24. And in Genesis chapter 24, we're going to see some important things here. And the first thing we're going to see today that happens is 25 more years have passed. Isaac is probably about 40-ish right now, and his mother Sarah has just died. So Isaac is mourning the loss of his mother. Abraham is mourning the loss of his wife. Abraham at this point in the account is roughly 140 years old, which is really hard for us to get our minds around someone being that old. But Abraham is an old guy. And Abraham realizes that he now needs to find a son for his wife. A wife for his son. Scratch that. Move it around. I just seen if you're paying attention. Right? <laughs> Excuse me. Reverse that. He needs to find a wife for his son. And in the simplest events of today's ordinary story, we're going to see that God's sovereign hand is working. God's sovereign hand is working even in the ordinary events of life. And so first I want to show you that God's hand is working through ordinary people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. And so Abraham said to his chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Okay, there's some things going on here that we need to talk about, all right? Uh, first, first of all, who, who is this servant? Well, this is his oldest servant, and the idea here is this is the chief servant of the house, the elder servant, the one who's lived long enough to know what's going on and to be completely trusted. Um, This might be Eliezer, whom Abraham mentions way back earlier, before he had any descendant as his chief servant then, but I believe probably likely that Eliezer has already died. And here we have another unnamed servant, And I think this unnamed servant is unnamed for a very important reason. And I love the fact that he is unnamed because there is absolutely nothing noteworthy about him. He didn't even get a name. He's completely ordinary. He's an ordinary servant. He's an ordinary person that doesn't get a name. You guys know that I I said earlier that I love movies and Uh, One of the things that happens to me often when I'm watching a movie is I'll see an actor on the movie and I'll think, oh, where have I seen him before? Where have I seen her before? And it'll drive me crazy. So I get out my uh, IMDb 
app, my internet movie database app, and I'll look up the show and find the episode and scroll through or look up the movie and start looking for this person. And if you tap on them, you can see all the movies they've ever been in. And, uh, and so and it's like, oh, and then it'll dawn on me uh, where I've seen that person before. So one thing that I was doing, one day I was looking at a movie, trying to find this particular character and going through the entire cast. And as you scroll through the entire cast, eventually you get down to people in the movie who you barely knew were in the movie. And they're not even given a name. Like worker number three, right, is played by so-and-so person. Like this person is so not important in the movie, they're not even given a name. If the character is significant, normally they do get a name. And generally, you don't leave a significant character unnamed. The main character in our story today is unnamed. Why? Why would this be? Because the main character in the story is not this chief servant. The main character in the story is God. And God is going to show up here. And use an unnamed servant, someone who is completely ordinary, for God's glory and his good and Abraham's good. God works through ordinary people, even ones who don't get a name. Now, Abraham says to his servant, okay, come over here and put your hand under my thigh. Now, this is a little different, right? I'm going to guess that you don't normally invite people to do that to you in your everyday life. What is going on here? Why would he do this? Well, first of all, you have to understand that what is coming into place here is Abraham is calling on the Abrahamic covenant, this covenant that God made to him. Abraham is calling back and he's saying, I'm ready to call upon this God who made this promise or agreement or covenant with me. I'm ready to call upon his name right now. And so this is a sacred symbol or a bond. And so what what Abraham is doing is he's inviting his servant to take his hand and put it under Abraham's inner thigh. Like a very, very personal place. Why is he doing this? Well, I think the reason for this is Abraham is calling back to the God of the covenant. Do you remember what the, the covenant was for Abraham, the symbol of the covenant? It, it was circumcision. And so what Abraham is doing is nothing freaky or weird or erotic or anything like that. Abraham is just saying, I want to do something that's so uncomfortable for both of us that we will remember the God upon whom we are calling. And this shows an intimate kind of personal friendship between Abraham and his servant. This shows this and demonstrates this right here, that Abraham loved his servant and his servant loved Abraham, and they're making a connection based on the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so they make this solemn oath by the name of Yahweh who had made this covenant. It's a physical reminder of the promise of God. God does these things for us all the time. Physical reminders of spiritual realities. Every time we take communion together, we have a physical reminder of a spiritual reality of what Christ has done for us because of his great love for us. Every time we do this, we have a reminder of this. And this is no different. So Abraham is talking to his chief servant and Abraham realizes that he needs this ordinary person to help him fulfill an important promise for his son. 
there was a cultural expectation for Abraham to find a wife for his son. We don't really do that anymore as parents. We just send our kids off and say, hey, you know what? Let love find your mate for life, right? But that is not how it worked in the, in the ancient Near Eastern culture. No, no, no. A, a parent was responsible for finding a spouse for their child. This was a responsibility of the parents. And so Abraham realizes this, but he also knows two things. He knows, okay, wait a minute. I'm living as a stranger in a foreign land. God called me here years ago. I'm living here as a stranger in the foreign land. And if my son is to marry a, a Canaanite woman, one of these pagan moon worshipers from the, the land around me, this is going to be disastrous because she will inevitably pull him away from the worship of the true God. He also knows that he can't send Isaac back to Abraham's homeland where all Abraham's family is because Abraham might never come, or Isaac might never come back from there. So he recognizes these two things and so Abraham makes an agreement with the servant. He says, okay, chief servant, I want you to make a covenant with me, an oath with me. You're going to go back to my homeland and you're going to bring back a godly wife for my son Isaac. He, Abraham says, God will guide you. And Abraham tells his servant, once you find the woman to whom God leads you, once you find this woman, if she refuses to come back with you, you're released from your oath. So Abraham is doing something very important that generations after him will also do. He's being an ordinary, faithful person by doing the ordinary things that parents do for their children. You see, what Abraham's doing is intentionally passing the torch to his son, to the next generation. You know, parents, we become ordinary faithful people that can be used by God when we allow and set up things for our children so that we pass the torch for them. We regularly create godly behaviors for our children. When we do this, we're passing the torch to the next generation. When we set godly boundaries, when we say this is an acceptable behavior, we're essentially passing the torch to them, to the next generation. Even when we say no to our kids, we're helping them. When our kids want to be involved in 70,000 activities and we say no, we have to choose what's important. We're allowing in ordinary events of life to pass the torch for Christ to the next generation. Abraham takes it as his solemn responsibility to make sure this happens. And he does this for his son. You see, ordinary people pass the torch. Ordinary Christians pass the torch to their next generation through their children. We demonstrate godly priorities and talk about Jesus. It doesn't have to be with your physical children. Paul does this. And he doesn't have any physical children that we know about. Paul does it with what he calls his son in the faith, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, listen to the words of Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, you then, my son. I love that language. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul outlines there this heartfelt passion to pass the torch to the next generation. And Paul talks about four generations there. 
He says, the things you've heard me say to Timothy in the presence of many witnesses. Now, Timothy is supposed to instruct faithful people who will instruct others. There's this simple formula for being an ordinary faithful person whom God uses, whom God hand works through. And sometimes we just do the things in life. To do the things in life that pass the torch to the next generation. And that's what ordinary people do. And what we're seeing is God's sovereign hand is going to be working through Abraham and through his servant, through these ordinary faithful people. And then we're going to secondly see that God is working through these ordinary events. Not only ordinary people, but also ordinary events. Ordinary activities. So as we go back to this story in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant does this. He puts his hand under Abraham's thigh. They make this oath and covenant together. And they do this. And then watch what happens in verse 10. Sometimes the Bible just uh, summarizes things. And this is one of those summary verses. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels. Verse 10 of chapter 24. He took 10 of his, servants, or his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram, Naharim, and made his way to the town of Nahor. Abraham's servant didn't just have to like go out and travel, you know, a day's journey. It took him months. Abraham's hometown, home region, was likely thousands of miles away. This was a journey. I mean, he takes 10 camels because he needs 10 camels to take all his supplies for this kind of a long journey. And when he's going through this journey, months and months of travel, he has time to reflect on how God's promise to Abraham is going to work itself out through this servant. And he's going to come to the conclusion that he, on this journey of months, that he cannot do this without the sovereign power of God. He cannot do this without the sovereign power of God. Now, what do we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty? Because when we talk about providence, we need to talk about his sovereignty. What do we mean by sovereignty? Well, sovereignty is simply defined as this, the possession of ultimate authority or power. That is what we mean by sovereignty. How do we use that in language that's not related to God? Well, we often talk about a sovereign nation. Well, we mean a nation who is independent, who directs its own affairs, and is sovereign to make its own choices. A sovereign nation. Puerto Rico is not a sovereign nation. Right? They have to report to the United States because they're part of the United States. Iowa is not a sovereign nation. But the United States is a sovereign nation. So this is how normally we use the word sovereign. When we come to God, we see, of course, ultimately, the, He is sovereign because He reports to no one and He makes decisions with all power and authority to do as He pleases. But here's what I want you to see, that God in His sovereignty is always pursuing two things. In his sovereignty, he's pursuing his own glory. And he's always pursuing our good. Sometimes we have trouble separating those two things. Sometimes we think, oh, God is sovereign. He's just up in heaven toying with us. Just, you know, like, I can do what I want. I'm God. Ha ha. But God's sovereignty is always driven by his deep love for us. 
And this is demonstrated, of course, ultimately in him becoming one of us to die in our place and rise from the grave. God did this. So love and sovereignty are working together. God's glory is always accompanied by our good. And these two purposes woven together in this, they, they're woven together in this beautiful tapestry. And so God's glory happens when he makes Abraham into a great nation. Isaac needs kids, so God is pursuing, through the events of Abraham and his servant, a wife for Isaac so they can have kids. And God's also pursuing their good. This is good for Isaac to get a wife and to continue God's story. And the servant then has been tasked with working this out in the events that kind of seem ordinary. If God is sovereign, then it would make sense that after months on this journey, the servant would stop and he would have a conversation with God because he's come to believe that if God is sovereign, God must be orchestrating the affairs of this, of the events of this affair. And so look at what the, the servant does in verse 12. He gets to the town, he goes to the well, he kneels his camels down for rest. He gets back to Abraham's homeland. And look at the first thing he does, verse 12. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show me kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. The first thing that Abraham's servant does when he gets there is to pray. Because he's acknowledging that God's sovereign, providential hand is moving in these ordinary events of life. Now, it would be worth noting on a side note that uh, this is not necessarily an example for you and me to find our soulmate, right? Like you don't want to go to Jordan Creek Mall and say, God, when I walk in, the first woman that comes up and offers to water my camels is the one that you have for me, right? I always laugh that uh, when Clarissa and I were dating, I, uh, we were on our college campus in the lobby of, of uh, my dorm building talking and this guy comes up to Clarissa and he says to her, uh, I think God told me that I'm supposed to marry you. And I'm like, I'm standing right here. Like, what is wrong with you? People are crazy. And so she says, well, when God tells me that, I'll let you know. And so, like, <laughs> people do crazy, crazy things because they think that God is, this is not a pattern or uh, a device that you're supposed to use to find your soulmate. But what it is a demonstration of is that Abraham's servant recognizes that he needs the power of God's sovereign hand. And so the very first thing he does is he prays. He prays. God's works through ordinary prayers. Not only is he working in these ordinary events, but he's working through prayer. Because prayer really does matter. Some, I have heard people say before, and maybe you've heard it said, that if, if God is sovereign, and if God knows the events that are going to happen, if he's all-knowing, what's the point of prayer? And if God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, what's the point? Why would we pray? But here we see the real power of prayer, working with 
God's sovereignty. Look at verse 15. This is so fascinating. He says this prayer, Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. Before he had finished praying. Wait a minute. Okay, so you're saying, Dave, that this woman must have set out on her journey to the well before the servant started praying. God was answering this man's prayer before he even prayed it. So what's the point of prayer? Why pray? How does this all work? Well, for me to tell you that I completely understand all this, I don't. I don't. But somehow God's sovereignty and our prayers are working together in a beautiful tapestry that ends up in God's glory and our good. Jesus tells us clearly to pray. Somehow our prayers are real and effectual in God's sovereign plan. And this servant acknowledges this. So did prayer matter in this case? Yes. God used his prayer. He uses our prayers. I've told you guys this story many times in this journey to the avenue. But for me, this is a real example of how God's prayer works. For years, you know that we've been praying about different pieces of property around. I've been driving to different pieces of property. Uh, you know, we've been working with Peter for a long time on different pieces of property. And I think of how many buildings I drove past and prayed, God, would you give us that building so we can create an avenue to bring people to Jesus? Or uh, a, a piece of property over on the other side of town, I'd sit there and drive in front of it and just pray. I'd go walk in the weeds sometimes and say, God, is this the one? Pray, give us this piece. And we continually praying and praying and praying. And then finally, his answer was no, 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 no. And I'm sitting in my office looking out at the dying tree outside of my office window. And beyond that is the building that we're going to purchase, Lord willing. And, and, and God just points a simple thought in my head while I'm praying. Why not this building? And what's so cool is before I had ever prayed that prayer, God had been working in the, in the heart and mind of the owner of this building who had already wanted to sell it, who thought he had it on the market but didn't. God had prepared him before I ever prayed. And what I love about this is God's sovereignty working out in an ordinary prayer for his glory and our good. You see, God works through ordinary, the events of ordinary prayers, and he works through the events of ordinary activities. In this case, in the servant's case, he not only prays, but he goes to the well. You have to understand, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the well was a completely ordinary daily routine. There's no indoor plumbing for ancient Near Eastern people. Uh, if their community was often built around a well or near a well with the well on the outside of town, and a daily task for women in their culture was to put up their jars on their shoulders, walk out to the well, draw the water that they would need for the day, and go home. Then later on in the cool of the day, in the cool as the sun laid down, they would go get more water. This was a daily, usually twice a day routine for people in this culture. The servant isn't looking for anything crazy or unordinary. This is a completely ordinary activity. And so Rebecca is just doing her normal activity and God is working in this. And this servant, of course, looks up then and as he's scanning the people, the scripture tells us that he found a good-looking one. He found Rebecca and he said, that's a good-looking lady. That's a pretty normal response, all right, for a guy, right? He's a pretty good-looking lady there. 
Pretty normal response, and he's about to see that she's an answer to prayer. Look at verse 17. The servant hurried to meet her, and he said, please give me a little water from your jar. So he initiates this. She says, drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And she had given him a drink after this, she said. I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. So quickly she emptied the jars in the trough and ran back to the well to draw more water. For 10 camels, for a lot of camels, that was a lot of trips for her. And the servant is saying, ha ha, God, look. Like it was one thing for me to ask her for a drink. All on her own she offered, God, I'm seeing your sovereign hand at work in these ordinary events of life. Notice that he initiates and he's not hesitant because he expects God to answer. And then he watches. He uses his common sense to look and see, God, is this the answer? So many times people forget that the Christian faith is a reasoned faith. Christians are supposed to engage our mind and our senses. What drives me crazier than anything is when people talk about this Kierkegaardian leap of faith, like just turn off your mind and, and just believe. That is not the Christian faith, and that is not what the servant here is doing. The servant is using his senses and his mind to try to figure this out. So the next thing he does is he starts quizzing Rebecca. The servant quizzes her. He finds out where she's from. He finds out what family she's from. She's part of the, the right part of this family tree for Abraham. And he's saying, doors are opening. This is looking good. And so he invites herself basically to her house. She invites him over and says, come home, meet my family. And so the servant does. God works through ordinary events. He does. And then he, and part of this is the ordinary event of worship. Look at his response then at, to this. Verse 26, Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on a journey to the house of my master's relatives." The first thing he does is he sees the doors opening up through these ordinary events as he does what he, Abraham has probably taught him to do over the course of his life, and that is to worship the Lord. Let us never forget when we are bowing before our Lord, when we come together, when God answers prayers through ordinary events, let us never forget to stop and worship let us never forget to stop and worship him, even if it doesn't seem extraordinary, because we acknowledge then that God's sovereign hand is working providentially in the ordinary events of our life. The third thing that I want to talk today, not just about ordinary people and ordinary events, but the last thing I want to talk to you about today is that the ordinary faithfulness of God's people. God is working through the ordinary faithfulness of his people. So the servant meets Rebecca's family and, and, and in what is clearly an ancient Near Eastern technique for writing, the servant repeats the entire story. So he, we've just read the story and now Moses, as he's recording this for us, is going to tell us the entire story again as the servant tells it to Rebecca's brother and her father. And what this is, is it, to us, we kind of go, hey, I, I already read this. Why am I reading this a second time? 
But you have to understand, this is a clear tool that highlights very clearly for the audience that this is not just a random event. This is God's sovereign hand working in the ordinary events of life. And so the point here uh, is that God is, is continuing to work. And this is an important cultural retelling. And so for about the next 15 verses, he retells the entire story. And he gets through the whole thing again. And look what Rebecca's brother Laban and her father Bethuel say. In, in uh, verse 50, he says this. Laban and Bethuel answered, so the servant has just told him the whole story again of how he prayed and he came to the well and he said, God, let it be this kind of woman and this kind of woman showed up and she came back to the house. He just recounts that whole story again and then Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here's Rebecca, take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord directed. Okay. If some boy comes to me and says, Hey, uh, I'd like to take your daughter back to Canada with me uh, and uh, marry her. And God told me because there was this thing at the mall and with camels and whatnot. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to go, oh, okay, that sounds good. Go off, go, go off and be, be with the Rutledges and all the Canadians up in Canada. You know, like I, I'm probably not going to do that, right? Um, and so, again, we're working in a very different culture. Why would Laban and Bethuel agree to this? Well, there's two reasons. One, again, cultural expectation of how God is speaking and working is at, is at work here. But a second thing, there's some selfishness going on. Um, it would be expected for them to raise a daughter up to go and leave their household and marry another man and go away. This is the, Bethuel has raised Rebecca with this expectation. And so she's old enough where he's expecting this to happen soon. But the second thing about its selfish interest here is that Bethuel is going to get rich off this. Like, he's going to get a dowry. He's going to get wealth and jewels, and he's going to get something for it. And he realizes that Abraham is a wealthy guy. And he's looking at the stack of camels that this guy has brought with him and say, and look how this servant has decked Rebekah out. And he says, eh, this is, I'm going to lose her anyway. I might as well get rich in the process. And that's where he's at and where they're at in this. And so Laban is most likely, and Bethuel are most likely thinking about this. And we see this happen in verse 55. We can see this, why this happens. Keep reading there. As soon as uh, they get up the next morning, verse 54, and the servant said, hey, send me on my way to my master. But Laban, her brother, and her mother replied, let the girl remain with us 10 days or so, then you can go. Why are they doing this? Okay, this is very clearly an attempt by Laban and the girl's mother to milk this servant for more stuff. They're thinking, 10 more days, we can throw up enough obstacles, well, he'll have to throw more stuff at us and we can get rich. And we know this because this is Laban's character. When we end up in the series about Jacob and we see Jacob interacting with Laban, we're going to realize that Laban is a swindler to the core. And so they want more from him. Uh, Watch about Abraham's servant here, what he says, because this is really important. Abraham's servant could bow to this pressure. You know, there might be more in it for him, too, if he stays a little longer. But watch what the servant says. He says in verse 56, Do not detain me, 
Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so I may go to my master. Abraham's servant is undeterred. He says, I am going to be faithful to my mission that God has put me on, that my master has put me on. I am going to be faithful. I am going to be faithful. And this was all about God's providence amidst distraction. There's so much distraction going on here. This servant is thousands of miles from his home. This servant is out on his own. This servant could potentially be harmed come to him. This servant could be distracted by a lot of different things. But he's faithful to what God has called him. And so, this is where they ask Rebecca what she thinks. They go, well, you know, she's our daughter. She's, you know, the mom is saying, and she's my brother. She's going to still listen to us, right? So they say, hey, let's ask her what she thinks, expecting her to say, no, let's stick around. And this is where she shines. Will you go with this man, they said in verse 58. She said, I will go. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and they said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. Then Rebecca and her maids got ready and mounted their camels and went back with the man. So, they, so the servant took Rebecca and left. What I love here is this is just ordinary faithful people. The servant is saying, I will not be distracted. I will not be distracted. You know, it's so easy for us in life to find distractions in our way. We know that God has given us a mission to bring people together to live, love, and give like Jesus. It is very easy for us to be distracted from that mission. Life is filled with distraction. We live in a world of distraction. Uh, Most uh, millennials can't keep their attention for like Three seconds, right? I mean, that's the, and the next generation, everyone keeps co- talking about how attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter in, the, in our culture as more electronics come around. This whole world is filled with distractions. And yet here we see a man who is faithful to what he's been called. And for Christ followers, there is a call for us to be ordinary, faithful people because God's kingdom work is happening through people like you and me. This is because God is doing his kingdom work through ordinary people. And why is this hopeful? You guys, this is hopeful because when we look at these things, when we look that God is working through ordinary events in our lives, and we come to this point, we say, I want to be an ordinary, faithful person. So you go to work if you have a job. You go to work every single day. You have a routine, and for you, your routine is ordinary. But at your job, God's providential hand can be moving. Maybe you don't have a job. Maybe you live with your parents or or still are at home, or maybe you're, you're retired. God's providential hand can work through the ordinary events of your life. When you're at an activity or a ball game, when you're at school, God's sovereign hand can be working in the ordinary events of your life. His sovereignty is at work. Yesterday, uh, I I was reminded of this verse, and I think it's really appropriate for us today. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, Make it your ambition to lead 
not an extraordinary crazy life. Rather, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. As an ordinary, normal person, this verse brings me hope. This brings everyone hope that God's hand of providence can work through the ordinary events of our life. It's working for His glory and our good. And we see this last fact worked out as the story comes to an end. Rebecca goes home with the servant. They travel thousands of miles by camel back home. And from a distance, Rebecca sees Isaac. She asks about him. She finds out this is the one to whom she is now betrothed. She sees him for the first time from a distance. She covers herself up and and puts on the appropriate wedding uh, gown and garb, and they meet for the first time. And look how this story ends in really an ordinary way. The servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of her mother, his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That phrase, he loved her, is kind of uncommon for an ancient, ancient Near Eastern culture. You didn't marry for love. And yet what we see here is God's sovereign hand working in ordinary events for God's glory and their good. God's glory, their good. God's kingdom is at work in your life today. You don't have to be extraordinary. You can just be you and make a providential difference for the kingdom of God. Let's pray as our worship team comes back to close us. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled and overwhelmed by the ordinary way you work in our lives. You work extraordinary things through ordinary events. And thank you, God. Thank you. Help us to be aware this week of how you are working and what you are doing. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.